HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live every Tuesday from about 12 to 12.45 in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network. Joined, as always, uh, with uh, my co-host, Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. Hello. Hi. On this fine Tuesday morning. How are you today? Fine. Good, good. All right. Today's Cooking Issues, number 61, I might add. Oh, by the way, today is a happy birthday to my mom issue. My mom's birthday today. Happy birthday. Yeah, right? Nah, it's not like she listens to What's her name? <laughs> <laughs> Linda, Dr. Linda J. Adonisio. She runs the heart transplant program at uh, Columbia University, the uh, pediatric heart transplant program. Yeah, she's badass. Anyway, <clears throat> today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantry. We should, they, should just, they sponsor every show, huh? This show should just be sponsored by them. Yeah, like all the time. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients, but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? Modernist Pantry has a solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook or enthusiast, and most only cost around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH buffers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world, Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Modernist Pantry now carries three types of gel and gum, including Calco Gel F, Low Acyl Gel N, and Calco Gel LT100, High Acyl Gel N. What's the other one? High, low. That's it. High, low, yeah. and a mix. Ferran uh, sells something called uh, Gel N or Gelanio or whatever he calls it in the Spanish stuff. And what it is, it's a mix of the high acyl gum and the low acyl gel and gum. So for those of you that don't know, well, I'll finish that thing first, then we'll get into it. Uh, fans of cooking issues that place an order of $35 or more before next week's show will get a free package of gel and. Simply use the promo code CI61 when placing your order online at modernistpantry.com. Visit modernistpantry.com today for all of your modernist cooking needs. Okay, so uh, gel and, right, is interesting because it's... Uh, it's one of the newer hydrocolloids. It's a product of uh, microbial fermentation, and it's made by Kelco, uh, CP Kelco. Piper, our uh, old intern Piper, now is working for CP Kelco because it's a family business. He moved out to California, correct? Oh, wow. Isn't that true? He was either about to he or he just moved out to California. <laughs> no, he took the job. Anyway, he's working for CP Kelco. So the cool thing about uh, Gelan is this. One, Gelan can be used for serification because it requires calcium to set. So if you have very, very pure water or you use what's called a sequestrant, which binds up the calcium, you can do spherification. I don't really like spherification, so that's not what interests me. But what is cool about Gelan is it has a very good mouthfeel, has very good flavor release, and you use it in very small quantities to get a fairly firm gel, which means that you're not going to mask uh, flavors a lot. The other cool thing about Gelan is that once you make the gel, you can boil it and it's not going to go away. So really, really hot gels, people use uh, Gelan. Also, the cool thing is that the high acyl gelan is very rubbery and stretchy and bouncy, and the low acyl gelan is very brittle. And by combining the two, you can get any kind of 
texture in between that you want. Jalen also makes very good fluid gels. Oh, we have a caller? Mm-hmm. Oh, caller, you're on the air. Hi there. Hi. Um, my name's John. I've called in uh, once before. Uh, I know you, uh, last couple weeks, you've been talking about um, hunters and how they should really get an immersion circulator to cook their, cook their kills. Um, so I mentioned that to a hunter buddy of mine, and he's actually, uh, his dad actually got a deer last night. Nice. So I'm wondering if you have any specific recommendations as far as um, what, uh, you know, what preparation and stuff. Uh, and it sounds like the most likely cut that he's going to get out of this is, uh, he said the uh, rear, so it would be like a ham, I guess, out of the hind quarter area. Right. Is, he, is, he, I, is he splitting it with other people, you mean? The, the, uh, the yeah, team? it's like he's splitting it with him and his dad, basically. Ah, yeah. so, he's getting the, so his dad's taking the loins and all that, huh? Yes, I think the loin <laughs> is probably the best part, so yeah, he's getting a ham cut. How old is the like. deer? Is it, very, is it young? I uh, don't know how old it is. It's a buck, though, so they're worried it might be a little bit uh, gamey. Right, and that, that's one of the reasons uh, I asked, because cooking low temp isn't going to take any of the gaminess out, out of the meat, right? So, like, for instance, right. if you get, like, you know, a very, very young deer, like the liver is good, but it goes incredibly livery in an older deer. Uh, but I don't, let me see. So, for meat that is gamey, tendency is when you cook it, the longer you cook it, the more you accentuate that kind of gaminess, Right. right. So then the other question is kind of uh, and how old the animal is is going to determine roughly how tough the meat is, right? Right. <clears throat> so if you like gaminess, right now, in general, the deer is not going to be very fatty. So even a young tender deer, if you overcook it, it's shot. You know what I'm saying? Because right. it's going to dry out. So here are the basic parameters. Typically in a gamey animal, the longer you cook it, the uh, more gamey it gets. Now, if you like that gamey taste, that's not necessarily a problem. All right? The more connective tissue that's in an animal, the longer you need to cook it to tenderize it at a given temperature, right? right. And the less fat is in an animal, the drier it's going to get the instant you overcook it. So these are the three things you have to play with. <clears throat> now, for uh, low temp, like on a deer loin or something like that, I like low, like 55, 56 Celsius, right? right. And, and you don't need to cook it that long. Now, the question is, how long, if you're going to use those cooking temperatures, how long do you need to cook uh, the different muscles in the hindquarter to get them to be tender? It's probably going to be a while, in which case it's going to be gamey. I, you know, I would recommend... Um, like well, z- I know he does cut these things like steaks. Uh, I mean, he says, he's basically cutting, he said he's cutting steaks out of the ham area. So I think he treats them much like he would something from the loin. Right. I mean, I'd, I'd, bag, I'd bag them in butter. I wouldn't salt them because you might have to cook them for a long time. And if you cook them for a long time, you're going to lose some of the juiciness if they're pre-salted. I would bag them in butter without any uh, – or oil, whatever. But, uh, you know, something that's not going to affect the flavor in a negative way. I would not add salt until uh, the secondary process. You can sear it beforehand if you want it. Bag it. And then if you want to cook it like a steak – he has to – in his mind, he has to come up with what he thinks the equivalent steak is, right? So uh, I'll give you some examples. Like uh, a skirt steak, if you're only going to cook it for like 30 minutes, you want to cook a skirt steak at 57. If you're going to cook a skirt steak for four hours low temp, right, then you're going to want to go down to 55, 56 Celsius because it's going to tenderize over that and it's going to taste better at those lower temperatures. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Also, you're not going to want to cut it too thin or you're going to ruin all of your good work when you do the sear off. See, one of the ways that people do game meats a lot, even in the hind quarter, right? Uh, Like, for instance, I've had lion meat this way and bear meat this way. They'll cut very, very thin steaks, almost like uh, pork chops used to be. And then then they'll just high heat pan them real quick. And it'll basically – the fact that the meat is tough and overcooked is going to be ameliorated by the fact that you have the nice taste from the searing. And it's cut so thin that your teeth are going to be able to make it through anyway. But that's not what we're looking for, right? Right. We're looking to actually cook the meat properly. So you're going to want to cut a relatively thick steak. So if he's saying he's steak cutting it, you want to find out kind of what thickness he's going for. I would go on the thicker side like you would for a regular, like a good beef steak. And then just run a test with a small cube and see how tender it gets if you cook it at, let's say, 55 for eight hours. Do you know what I'm saying? And then just, Really? Okay. Yeah, just see – like as a ballpark start, just take a small cube of it without searing it because I don't want to know anything about what happens. I want to know what happens to the tenderness and the flavor of the meat itself. 
uh, do that and see whether it goes. If it's mushy, it means you cooked it too long. If it's not tender, it means you haven't cooked it long enough. If it's very right. gamey, try to up the temperature a degree and, and chop the time down by a lot. And if it's, uh, you know, if it's, just, if it's just undercooked for your taste, then obviously uh, – you know, raise the temp. And if it's uh, – similarly, if it's overcooked for your taste, lower it a little bit. Don't go below about 54, uh, f- 54.4 Celsius if you're going to cook it for a long time just for safety reasons uh, and you're not going to want to go above 57. So like that's your whole range of cooking right there. Perfect. Okay, cool. We'll experiment with that then. Uh, right, um, can you – when you're done – you can ask me the question. When you're done, will you please write or call in and tell us what happened? Sure, yeah. Maybe I'll take some pictures too. Nice. Um – just thinking about, uh, so, I, you know, I did a, um, a dinner this weekend with some friends, and, and um, my wife just loves, um, you know, uh, steak tenderloin. So that's what I did, and that's, you know, crowd pleaser. It's, you know, easy to do, 55, hour, hour and a half, and, and, you know, it's nice and tender, sear it off. The one time I have tried different cuts of steak, I think I was a New York strip, I basically used the same technique. And I know that, um, you know, from your charts and stuff, it, it, you know, I think – New York Strip is considered a tender cut, so that's pretty much the same technique I applied, but it was really tough. Um, and I don't know if that was a function of just not a very good cut of meat, or do I need to cook a cut like that longer? Okay, so a strip, depending on, uh, well, you know, strip does have that piece of uh, cartilage running underneath the fat line right up at the, at the top, but you're not talking about that. You're talking about the meat No, itself. just the whole, yeah, the whole hunk in general, I think, was kind of just not very, not very tender. What temperature do you use? I, it, I, it's been a while, but I think it was basically 55, yeah. you know, what you medium rare. 55 is a fine temperature for strip. I mean, it's great temperature for rib, for instance. It's a fine temperature for, uh, for, for you know, um, uh, ribeye. Uh, but the uh, – you might want to take the strip up to 56 or just cook, okay. it, just cook it longer. I think, uh, you know, a – a strip in general, when we cook strips, I like to cook them at least two hours at 55 okay. um, to soften them up. And actually, I think they're kind of at their optimum at around four. Uh, really? In, okay. Yeah, at okay. that range of four hours. They're not going to go gamey on you and you're not going to break them down too much. So I would say a 55, which is a good number, I would cook it for about four hours. Uh, no salt beforehand, uh, otherwise right. it's going to lose some of its texture. And I would then uh, drop the temperature of the circulator to 50 okay. f- for about half hour or so uh, just to let it uh, – between half hour and 45 minutes to let it uh, – the temperature in the center of the steak come down to 50 and then just sear the bejesus out of the outside. And why do you just drop the temperature so you don't overcook it when you sear it? Bingo. Okay. Yeah, that's the only reason. And, you know – if you have like uh, – for instance, I did this uh, just last night is uh, I, I cooked a whole bunch of steaks on uh, Sunday in a bag, unsalted, um, rib steaks at 55. And then I had one uh, left over because somebody canceled on me. So I just left it in the bag and then I, uh, I heated it up last night. I threw it uh, – I cooked on Saturday rather. I threw it in, a, uh, in the circulator but I put my retherm at 50. Right, retherm right. it for thirty-five minutes and then sear it. Right, so you're not going to have any safety issues because you're only keeping it at fifty for a very short amount of time, and the rest of the time it was kept in a safe zone. And then you can flash it off. So if you if you don't want to worry about exactly, you know, dropping it at the right time, and you're going to cook it ahead of time, then you can just do your retherm at fifty and then sear it off, and you're not going to have any problems. Right. Great. All righty. Thanks for thank calling you very in. Much. Let us know how the deer uh, came out. We'll do. Keep up the good work. Super. Thank you. All right. So back to gel in. <laughs> oh, God. That's <coughs> 21. What? Yeah. Well, let me finish the gel in before we go to break. Anyway. So if uh, – uh, I had something to tell you about that too, about the, about the steak. Oh, you know what? My stepfather says I speak very, very quickly. Is that true? It's very true. I speak – he says I speak uh, more quickly on the radio than I actually do in the real life. Is that true? I fear if I open my mouth before I say something, you're going to cut me off right before I say it. That's Uh, how fast you speak. That's a confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Who the hell wants to talk slow when they're on the radio? I mean, am I unintelligible? (laughs) Did you see that? All right, all right, all right, all right. right. Anyway. Okay, okay. So, Jelan. So, uh, 
So gel, the other cool thing Gel Land does is it makes a, a fluid gel. And a fluid gel is something where you make a gel and you shear it into very, very small particles. The particles tend to uh, kind of adhere to each other when it's at rest and they form a gel. Uh, it what's, acts like a gel. And then when you shear it, i.e. in your mouth or by pouring it or spooning it or anything like that, it reverts to the properties of a liquid. It makes a fluid gel. Gel Land, great stuff. Uh, we like it a lot. That's what we use for our ice cream that we uh, – I'm bleeding? My nose is bleeding, uh, but not through, not through the nose hole, the bridge of the nose. In case you guys are getting grossed out that there's, like, blood shooting out of my nostrils while I'm talking, it's not true. I scraped the bridge of my nose is what Nastasha's telling me. Anyway, now Nastasha has an image of me blowing uh, blood out of my uh, nose holes. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Nose holes. So, uh, Jell-In, really good stuff. Uh, we use it to make our hyper-creamy, torchable ice cream. Anyway, with that, uh, call in your questions to 718 what is it? Oh, my God. I forgot it's it. 497 That's right. 718-497-2128. We're going to go to our first commercial break, Cooking Issues. Love that song, right? What was that noise? You don't like Stevie Wonder? No, I got a glitter in my throat. Oh. <laughs> I've got, <coughs> that's a new one. I've got glitter in my throat. All right. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Hey, Nastasha, it was fun having uh, Talbot on the show last week, right? Mm-hmm. He was a fun guest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys enjoy the Talbot over there in the booth? Yeah? Thumbs up? Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, he's a good man. H- how was his other show that he recorded? He's good. He pulled a marathon. and He's here all day. I know it. He was just sitting out in Roberta's, like, you know, with his earphones in, being totally antisocial. I ran into him, like, oh my God, Alex Talbot, come on the show. It's he may much... have slept here. I'm not even sure. He did? In the morning or in the evening or both? After all the shows, you know? Yeah, just slept, couldn't make it back to Philly. Exactly. Nice. Nice. Okay, so call in your questions to 718 497 2128. That's 718 497 2128. Going to go to some ra- uh, writing questions, right? Is that what we call them? Writing yeah. questions? Yeah, emailed. Questions. Can you give me the glitter noise again? <laughs> Um, I'm just getting over something too So I have the same laugh My grandpa used to Which is always Like coughing It's like start laughing And then coughing So yeah. it reminds me yeah, of, yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of being mean to people Because it makes me Anyway, anyway So <laughs> I'm trying Who's this from anyway Do we know who this is from This question Is this Blake also from Anderson, Johnny their names are Oh Blake Alright Blake Anderson writes in I'm trying to make a chilled Zabayon But l- the liquid separates out After an hour in the fridge uh, the recipe says to chill for four to six hours. I'm using four egg yolks, very fresh and very local. One quarter sh- uh, cup of sugar, one half to one cup of red wine. I don't usually use red wine, but anyway. Here's a caller. Like Marsala. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, our- Blake, we're going to come back to this. Caller, you're on the air. <clears throat> Hello? Were you lying to me, Nastasha? Oh, hey, caller. You're on the air. Jack's I think we lost problems. him, sorry. Yeah. We lost him? Yeah, yeah. weird. Jack mm. lost nice, Jack. Thanks, man. Thanks, bro. Okay. Uh, so, we're going back to Blake's uh, Zabayon. Uh, quarter cup sugar, half cup to one cup red wine. He, drops the liquid, uh, he dropped the liquid ratio. That didn't fix the problem. Uh, Blake, you think that's a man or a woman? It's a woman, man, man. Right? man. Uh, dropping a liquid ratio did not fix the problem. I'm beating a mixture to a foam on a double boiler and mixing until the mixture cools to below 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Would adding less than help to better emulsify? Any advice to make a stable mixture? All right, Blake, I think I know your problem. You're not going to believe it. You ready for this? You're not going to believe it. First of all, Zabayon, one of my favorite things. I love Zabayon. You like that stuff, Nastasha? Yeah. Like over strawberries? It used to be, I used to make this all the time. I would, I, you know, I used to have like a bottle of Marsala uh, just lying around the house just for this occasion. When it's strawberry season, I'd cut up the strawberries, make a Zabayon, pour that bitch right over the strawberries and eat it. That was dessert. It's a good dessert, yeah? Yes. Okay. Now, here's what you were doing wrong. I almost guarantee it because I used to do this too. You're undercooking your Zabayon. So what you're doing is you're, you're super worried. And by the way, here's the procedure, folks. You put your egg yolks, your liquid, your sugar in a bowl. You whisk the uh, heck out of them. And you put it over a heat source. And you keep whipping until it becomes foamy and thickens. 
right? Then it becomes a creamy sauce. Now, everyone, when they're making zabayon, petrified that they're going to overcook the uh, egg yolks and uh, thereby make it taste grainy and like scrambled eggs. Now, you're probably, if you're being careful and you keep beating it, it's not going to happen. Here's the issue. A zabayon is going to start getting foamy and look like it's built up a texture just from the fact that you're so afraid that you're going to curdle it that you're beating the crap out of it with a whisk. So you're forming a nice foamy mixture with your zabayon, but you're not cooking it enough. Then when you pull it off and put it in the fridge to cool down over time, that foam separates and you get a layer of liquid sitting at the bottom because it doesn't kind of keep self-emulsified the way that, let's say, a creme anglaise does when it's undercooked, right? Which is, you know, similar, but instead of using a wine, you're using uh, milk, right? And usually not as high of an egg yolk uh, ratio. So what you're doing here is you're making something that looks all foamy, but it's not cooked yet. And it's going to separate. I've done this many times. I guarantee that's your problem. Do not be afraid. Make sure that your mix isn't just foamed up, but that the actual liquid is thick in your, in your Zabayon. And I guarantee you this is going to solve your problem. You'll be able to chill it down just fine. Uh, here's another thing. Everyone gets – I saw some uh, – I was looking up on the internets, and I saw some recommendations on uh, cooking it. And they're like, don't let it get too hot. Don't let it get too hot. And all, all of the recommendations that I saw on the internet – about the temperature at which uh, the egg yolks are going to curdle in the zabayon are all off and they're all low. Uh, Invariably, I don't know what the heck these guys are reading their temperatures with or how much of a carryover they're getting, but the the information out there is just not right. Um, I, in fact, don't even make the thing... People are like, don't let let your pan touch the liquid in the double boiler or everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. Also not true. It's a matter of just being careful. Now, the larger amount you're making, the more careful you have to be about regulating your heat source because you can't keep the thing moving as quickly with your hands. But for small, normal quantities, a couple of egg yolks, uh, you know, you can do it. I do it in a a bowl with a smooth bottom. You don't want something with a lot of edges on the bottom because you're not going to be able to get your whisk into it effectively, and you might get some local curdling there. But I make the thing directly over a flame. I have like a bowl with like a loop in it that I hold the loop with a heat-proof thing, and I make it directly over a flame. I don't even use... Anything. If you're worried about cool, cooling down, getting carryover, have a uh, like a like a pan of, hot, of a cold water next to it to stick it in and beat it a couple of times. As soon as it starts cooling down, uh, it's not going to curdle on you. You're going to be fine. So I think your problem is just fear of curdling. Get over your fear of curdling, and your zabayon is going to be delicious. That's my recommendation. If you uh, are having like real issues, it's something that I don't understand. It is possible to stabilize it somewhat. I wouldn't use less than. I'd use starch. But uh, I wouldn't do it because it's going to muddy the flavor. Zabayon is so pure and delicious and light and ethereal that uh, it just shouldn't be messed with under, uh, under any circumstances. What are your thoughts on this? It's good. Yeah? All right. Johnny Kirk writes in, says, I have a question about preserving lemons through sous vide. In my experience, preservation through the, uh, of lemons through the use of a chamber machine takes an equal amount of time as the traditional method of preservation. My, uh, true. My process, uh, using a multivac C200, which is just like multivac C200, for those of you that don't know what the hell that is, it's a standard medium-sized restaurant vacuum machine. Like standard. Yeah, standard. Okay, uh, is as follows. Place the container with the lemons, the salt, and the lemon juice in the vacuum machine uh, and let it get down to about 20 millibar, which is fair to middle in vacuum. The guy's back on the phone. He's back on the phone? All right, caller. It's a, new, it's a new caller. New caller? We lost the old guy? I feel so bad now. Anyway, caller, you are on the air. Hey, guys. Howdy. Uh, question about Metocell solutions. Okay. Using them. I've, I've been playing with them lately and uh, have had what I would call absolutely no luck. <laughs> I get really, really stinky, nasty, chemically, even like fishy smells coming off of this stuff. Like, you know, 1% solutions. I tried to, I was trying to make some meringues. You know, you were talking about meringues a couple of weeks ago. Oh, hey, that's cool. I'll, do, I'll try that. I tried to make uh, sort of like a tui. You know, sort of crispy. I wanted to make a, a tamarind crispy piece. And, man, that stuff was so foul. Wow. I must be doing something horribly wrong. Okay. Help so me. Let's start. Which methocell do you have? So I have tried uh, both the F50 and the E4M. Okay. I tried to... Yep. Go ahead. E- the E-series? Yep. I, don't, I don't like the E-series. Let's get me honest. They don't, I don't okay. even know that they make the E-Series anymore because uh, their factory blowed, uh, blew up. 
a uh, number of years ago. Maybe they, maybe they started making again. But the E-Series is typically used for making, like, the twills and the chips. Is that what you were doing? Because they're film formers. That's, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, I don't like them uh, much. I know a lot of people that like them. Uh, I went to a restaurant which shall remain nameless. It was Moto. And, like, half the dishes had on it, uh, like, a twill formed with uh, Methocell, one of the E-Series. It's, right. It's E4 what? E4C, E4M? E4M. Okay, so that's also, I mean, the good news about E4M uh, is that 4M, the, the, the number, right, is uh, 4, and then the M stands for 1,000. So the viscosity of that one uh-huh. is like 4,000 times greater than uh, what a 1 would be. So F50 versus F4M, you're looking at a factor of... Uh, 240, like like 80, like 80 times thicker right. at a given uh, thing, okay? So okay. you should be able to use a relatively minuscule amount of it to provide a thickening power, but the problem is that the E-Series is good at film forming, but it's not very good at gelling, and it's not very good at, uh, as, I mean, I don't think it's a very good whipper. Um, it's mainly used for that film forming thing, but you need to have a certain amount of that in there to make the film forming thing. Anytime the methocell uh, percentage gets to be one, you're going to start tasting the awful uh, methocell stuff unless you're using some very, very, very strong flavors. So when, when I'm using F50, F50 is the one that makes really good foams that then makes a meringue. When you're using F50, if you have an extremely, extremely strong flavor like passion fruit, for instance, passion fruit or you know, some passion fruit variant um, will obscure... That sounds nasty, right? We'll obscure the methocell flavor up to about a percent or a little over. Uh, that said, in general, <clears throat> if you in a whipped product in a in a meringue, I don't taste the methocell uh, when it's down at like zero point eight percent, so eight grams per kilo. Uh, but you start adding like a like one point two grams per kilo over a percent like that, and you're definitely going to get. Uh, an off flavor from the methocell. That's like, and, so, and that's one of the the problems with it. Now, how much were you using with the F50, and what flavor were you using? That was the tamarind. Yep, and I I had started at just under a percent. I was going for 0.6, and then I I was paging through Modernist Cuisine, and those guys use it often at you know 1.2 ish or so. So I upped it. Uh, and I, I tried that in tamarind. I tried that in a, in a roasted cauliflower. I was trying to put those two together. And it just, it just kept coming through. I also had it pro- problems with it seeming like it was separating. Right. Which I assume is a dispersion problem. Yeah, a lot of, met- no. a lot of methocell, uh, ha- if you have, if, do you have a Vita prep? No, I don't. Yeah. So methocell is kind of a pain to uh, <clears throat> to disperse. So one of the um, – unless you have like a you know, very good uh, blender. So one way to, to nicely disperse, disperse methocell is to mix it with uh, a quantity of corn syrup or sugar and then uh-huh. blend it in to keep the particles separated. Another way is to go uh, hot-cold. So put the methocell into something very hot because it won't dissolve in stuff that's very hot. And then, like, like blend it, and then add like cold or chilled stuff to drop the temperature, and then it'll hydrate. And then uh, the last resort you'll notice in a lot of methocell recipes, if you look at them, they'll basically tell you to make the mixture and then let it sit overnight. And uh, a lot of hydration problems with methocell can be um, <clears throat> can be fixed by by letting it sit overnight. Now, the difference in taste of methocell between I, I, I look. I don't know whether this is true or not. I know the thickening power of uh, of these products is not linear. In other words, adding doubling the amount doesn't double the thickness. It's uh, right. it, it's a lot more than that. And I have a feeling, and I don't know why this would be the case, but it's my feeling that taste wise with methicillin, it's the same thing. So point two is going to taste like a lot more than point six. But my feeling is point six isn't going to be enough to get a nice stable meringue foam out of it. Right, so I would say try like point eight, point nine, but not above. The other thing yeah. I'm going to say is that <clears throat> is that it's a whipping agent, in that it actually helps to stabilize, uh, um, uh, air, you know, foams. But you're also going to want 
uh, some solids in there that uh, provide a structure. So in, when we use fruit purees, it's basically pectin mixtures that are providing that structure to you. So if you don't, a lot of people add bulking agents like maltodextrin to their uh, stuff to get them to whip up to a nice uh, – to have like – to have structure left when uh, you've dehydrated, if that makes sense, because right. there's not enough methocell there to provide the structure. So you, what you're looking at is the methocell is basically a, a whipping aid, and also it's holding the structure until it can dehydrate. But you don't want methocell being the primary physical structure of the meringues that you're making, or I think you're going to end up with those kind of a taste problems. Got it. Does that make sense? Several things to try, yep. All righty, and uh, let us know. Let us know what happens. I just don't like those e, those E fifteen or E four M films uh, films that right. much. It's, I mean, like some people do like them, so don't write in and say that I'm a jerk for saying it's just it's not my preference. I'm allowed, right? Absolutely. All right. Thanks for calling. Hey, what I uh, did the uh, kombu wrapped duck this weekend. We talked about last week. Was it delicious? Awesome. Good. Awesome. Nice. Yep. I got that trick Killer. from I got that trick from Nils, and it's delicious. Yeah, I'm going to wrap everything. I'm going to wrap, you know, brownies in kombu from now on. I know, it's good stuff. Yeah, great. All right. Thanks a ton. All right, thank you. <clears throat> okay. Is, it, is there another caller, Jack? Yes. Oh, go. caller, you're on the air. Hi. Just wanted to say thank you. You guys have been hitting it for 60 shows. Appreciate it. Oh, hey, thanks. Thanks for calling and, in. Uh, and the kombu wrap to ahi tuna that I went and caught was amazing. Yeah? Perfect. How, how, long, and, uh, how long was it wrapped? Uh, I wrapped it with some kombu that was caught just down the ocean from it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was pretty pretty dang amazing. Huh. Appreciate it. How long do you leave it? And, uh, overnight? What's that? You left I it over- left it for about a day. Nice. Beautiful. And then we, we just did sashimi with it. But um, my main question is I'm making hot sauce, and right now I'm using my, my Vitamix blender, but mm-hmm. I need to obviously move that forward a little bit. What What's the next thing I'm going to look for to make like a... Like a sriracha style hot sauce. Huh. I don't have Before any equipment. <clears throat> oh, uh, I don't have any recipes off the top of my. Well, what kind of problems I, I just do you want have? Go, I want equipment. I want to know what what homogenizer is there. What I need to do. Oh, I mean, you want it even finer than you can get it in a Vita Prep? But it's just I need to make more. Oh, size. Well, they make. Yes. Like, how much do you need to make? Like, what are we talking about uh, here? I'd like to do five gallons at a time. Wow. <clears throat> five gallons at a time. Yes. I want to go into business here. Yeah. There's... Okay. Let me think. They're... I mean, they make, obviously, large uh, style uh, things, but they're not going to get it as fine as a, uh, a Vita Prep does. But they're... I was it, looking at large rotor stators, but those are expensive. Oh, they're very expensive. You might want to look. There's, there's, there's basically something in between a blender and a food processor that I haven't seen much in... Um, in America, but in Europe they have them a lot, and I forget who makes who makes them. But they're basically like two uh, food processor blades stacked up, but in like a five gallon drum, and they sit on the floor, and they're priced for restaurants. Uh, okay. I, I don't know how fine they can go, but I had some chefs from Australia and Europe tell me that they're like the greatest thing since uh, since sliced bread. And <clears throat> what's cool is they tilt, <clears throat> so you put ah. your, you you top load your stuff. Hit go, and then um, and then it, it tilts it out. Now I'm not exactly sure um, what level of you know particle breakdown because the, the thing you're right, li- well, how many microns we can get you right. Um, yeah, because the I mean rotor stators are they're they're expensive and they're not good at breaking down large large things because they have to fit into the gaps. So you're going to need to do some initial breakdown anyway. You know, right. And if you want to go really badass, they have basically inline, uh, like I think they have inline inline rotor stator jobs where basically uh-huh. you, you you pre-pulp your stuff and then you stick it through the rotor stator and just whoosh, just goes through and gets completely annihilated. But that's not that big to begin with, so I just need to break down those hard seeds. Yeah, and the, the pepper. Yeah, and I'm like, uh, you want to actually physically disintegrate seeds? I don't think that this thing is gonna. I don't think that this that the 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 robo roboku like thing is gonna work on it. Um, okay. The other good thing is if you're actually gonna get a big piece of equipment, unless you're just gonna do a straight eBay buy, what you do is is you call them and you say, "Here's what I'm looking to do. Who's got one?" 
and then you go uh, and you look at it and you see what you know what kind of it can do. Uh, and you and once you make the next leap into like more expensive equipment, they're usually okay with that because they know that they're going to get uh, a customer uh, out of you. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'd like I'd like to spend you know a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred bucks to get everything going, but oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's going to be more yeah. than that for that. Like, right, <clears throat> another, right. you know, if you're making five gallons at a time, so I'm trying to think of like custom solutions. Even even a gallon, I might be able to live with, but right now the Vita Press just it's. It's a lot of work. Well, they make a much bigger Vita Prep. Um, ah. they, they make one that's, I think, three times the capacity that I think does like, like uh, four liters or something like that. And that one's in that range of like you know fifteen hundred bucks or something like that. Um, ah, so that's yeah. a big Vita Prep. Right. Yeah, it's much bigger. I haven't, wh- I haven't used it, but one more qu- quick question on the hot sauce thing is: uh, how do you measure garlicness? I mean, we have school units for heat. Hmm. Of the capsum, capsaicin, but uh, how do we measure garlicness? Well, it's it's an interesting and a difficult question because garlic is not stable. Like garlic chemistry is right. very, very. Uh, yeah, the elephant breaks down and all. Yeah. Right, and so I don't know at what point it's considered stable. Like at what, like how many you know weeks or months it's considered stable. But you're also measuring the pungency is measured in in different ways. Uh, right. it's been, uh, and I can't even keep it in my head, like the minute I read it, it goes out, but, uh, Eric, Eric Block, I think his book on garlic and other alliums. Um, I mean, it's just really a lot of complicated stuff to wade through. And so it's, uh, you know, great thing about capsation is, is that it is, um, you know, it's fairly stable and so it's easy to characterize and Scoville is fairly easy for people to measure. Similarly right. with hops, you know, IBUs, international bitterness units are fairly easy right. to kind of get a hold on what's going on and they make a lot of sense garlic on the other hand i don't know what the what the pungency rating of uh garlic is it's probably measured as like a free percentage of like alanin or whatever it is you know what i mean yeah, yeah. um right. but i don't i've never heard of anyone rating it that way in terms of uh trying to to make a standard uh which is a pain because different kinds of garlic have different levels of, like, radically different levels of pungency, and so it's going to be difficult okay. to control that way. Right, right, right. You know, I mean, like, well, I, I appreciate. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I have a bunch of hardneck garlic I just got from uh, the farm that uh, Thanksgiving farm that Cesare Casella works in, and it's it's baby twice as it's twice as you know powerful in terms of that awesome garlic flavor as like the normal crap I get out of the supermarket. But, yeah, we picked up some from the Berkeley Seed Bank. It's, uh, I think it was a Moroccan garlic or something weird like that. But it's, holy crap, is it powerful. I know it. I mean, it's too powerful to my wife who's not used to it. I love it. But um, right. it's interesting. If, uh, next time I speak to McGee, which is actually going to be in two days because I'm going up to the Harvard to give another. Uh, sp- oh, he's going to be there? Yeah, McGee's going to be there. Yeah. I'll, right. I'll ask him about it because that's the kind of thing he's interested in too. And if I ask him oh, about it, I'll, I'll try to remember to talk about it on the show next time. Well, ask him about popping sorghum too. Popping sorghum? Why was? Yeah. Were we talking? Or was I talking about it out here? Because I just had a I'm conversation kidding. about this with somebody. Terrible inconsistency. I love this stuff, but I can't get it consistent. I think it's just my distributors are different ages of sorghum. Right. Different and different probably moisture contents. I mean, you, know, you can equilibrate. Right, right. You can equilibrate grain. It takes a while, but you can equilibrate gra- grain to a specific moisture content. I don't have the protocols in, in the top of my head, but it's probably. Uh, moisture content's your problem. Ah, so can I re-moisturize it? Yeah, it, it just takes a while. Huh. It just takes okay. a while. Like you, put, yeah, put carry it in the bag or something. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Like you look, you look up on Google, like uh, Google procedures for because uh, it's called temper. They temper grains out to particular uh, moisture levels for industrial processes because you know, for instance, for puffing or extruding, if it's not exactly the same every time, like everything goes to hell. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah I noticed that one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I can talk to you all day, but I really appreciate the answers. Thank you. Call it. Call in okay. if you have any more results. <clears throat> I will do. All right. Now, where was I? Preserved lemons? Yep. All right. So, preserved lemons. We're talking about Johnny Kirsch preserved lemons, and basically, he puts them in the uh, vacuum machine, uh, salt, lemon juice, lemons, uh, gets it down to about 20 millibar. I'm assuming he puts cuts into the lemons, because usually people put cuts into the lemons. 
Anywho, he does this about three times, uh, and then he uh, bags them and seals them. Oh, so he just puts them with juice and salt in the container, vacs them without a bag, and then and then uh, vacs them down in a bag. Uh, it seems to make sense. The decreased oxygen level might speed the process of preservation. Also, if you could help me understand uh, the point, some people freeze their lemons when they're preserving. What's the point of that? I would appreciate it. Okay, so here's what's going on. <clears throat> Uh, when you vac the, the the reason you want to vacuum bag uh, preserve things, whether it be kimchi, sauerkraut, preserved lemon, is that uh, they like to be in oxygen free environments. It's not that it speeds it; is that you can get off flavors if there is uh, oxygen, and the bacteria that are growing there want to be anaerobic anyway. So uh, vacuum bagging is a good way to not have to worry about weighting things down in jars and making sure they're covered with their own juices and things like that. So that like when you're making a pickles or or anything like that, there's always instructions to like load it down, cover it to make sure they're covered, and that's to exclude air. If you bag it in a vacuum machine, uh, you get rid of that problem. Another great thing about a vacuum machine <clears throat> is uh, the vacuum machine, by doing kind of rapid infusion of any liquids that's there, can help get the salt and whatnot into the uh, fleshy part of the fruit much faster, right? Uh, and basically just kickstart those operations very quickly. Now, the point of freezing a preserved lemon uh, preparation, like uh, Alex Talbot does, for instance, in his uh, Ideas and Food Cookbook, is uh, you're breaking down that by repetitive freeze thawing, you're breaking down and tenderizing the the te- uh, texture of the uh, of the product. It's going to speed any sort of preservation if you are going to do a longer keep to keep get have them ferment a little bit, uh, and it's also uh, going to change the flavor uh, of the fruit a little bit. And we've done this with with our frozen and thawed lemons that we think I think they smell more like uh, bergamot, like a uh, like Earl Grey uh, after they've been frozen and thawed. Um, so that's what, that's what that's all about. But a traditional preserved lemon is a function of time because there are yeasts and I believe it's uh, like symbiotic yeast and like I think acetic acid bacteria. I think yeast makes alcohol very salt tolerant, acid tolerant yeast makes small quantities of alcohol which are then uh, digested by bacteria which I think make acetic acid. But this is coming off my memory. I didn't have time to research it this morning. I think that's what's going on. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, a, a preserved, a traditional preserved lemon pickle is going to uh, be a lot different from anything that you kind of shortchange or quick cut. Um, should we take one more commercial break? No. Really no, no. We have to finish. Well, you know, you know. Jack, do we have to finish? Can we take one more commercial break? Uh, yeah, take another break. All right, we'll take another break. We'll come back. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Uh, you like that? I come off that really mellow song with the screaming intro. <coughs> anyway. Uh, we need to have an announcer. Uh, yes, you want to be the announcer? No, I, I want to have Phil Bravo. Well, we have a friend, Phil Bravo. Not good for much, but probably <laughs> would be a good announcer. Right? I mean, everyone's good for something. Anyway, Phil Bravo. Anyway. So, Scott Hansma uh, writes in, and he says, uh, I'd like to make a, a transglutaminase, that's uh, meat glue, turducken breast, and then cook it sous vide, or low temp, actually. I wouldn't do it sous vide, I'd do it low temp. Uh, but the temperature for duck is very different than for chicken and turkey. Uh, two ideas I have were to do the whole thing confit style, which would probably be pretty awesome, but I was hoping for a roast-type texture. Or I thought about pre-cooking the chicken and turkey piece and then gluing it to the raw duck, but will the TG glue to the cooked meat? It will. Not as strong, but it will. Uh, or could I sous vide the whole thing to duck temperature with the duck in the center and then roast it to the other parts to a higher temp, but that's going to be hard to get precisely right. Any other ideas? What do you recommend besides not doing it? Scott Hansbaum. Okay, well, uh, you're in luck because this is one of the recipes that uh, I actually make quite a bit. And the you <clears throat> hit one of the secrets there. The secret is to arrange the meats in the order that they want to cook. That's the secret. So uh, what you do is you take a turkey – this is what I do anyway. I take a turkey skin. I lay the, t- I lay the turkey skin out. Then I, I slice uh, thin and pound out turkey breast, which I then uh, meat glue in a layer on the skin. Uh, then I put uh, a layer of chicken breast and then a layer of uh, sausage force meat. 
then a layer of duck, and then a squab in the center. Nils and I used to do this at like every sous vide class, so we've done it dozens of times. Uh, and then you roll the whole thing into one giant tube, uh, and then you put it into a water bath at 64 degrees Celsius, which is what the turkey wants to cook to, with a thermometer in the center. And when the squab makes it up to 56 Celsius, you pull the whole thing out, and every piece of meat all the way through is cooked exactly the way you want it. The turkey's cooked to about 64, the chicken's cooked to 63, uh, the sausage meat goes between about 63 and about 58. Uh, the duck goes between about 58 and 57, and the squab goes at 56, <clears throat> and everything's good. You then chill it down a little bit, and you deep fry the outside of it to crisp up the skin, and you're good to go. Nastasha, you've had that, right? It's very good. It's good, right? Mm-hmm. That is the way to do it. The other way to do it is to take then the leg meats and do a total confit of the leg meats, right? And since those are going to a high temperature anyway, that one you can just roll in a plastic tube, <clears throat> confit at like 82 Celsius for... Uh, or 85 Celsius for you know a couple of hours to get it cooked, pull it out, and I would serve them side by side, and that would be straight up delicious. We've never done that, but that would mean I'm telling you right now that would be delicious. Now, some tricks. I would, I would make a miniature roll first of the squab and the duck and then place it in – and then uh, roll it in sausage and then roll the larger roll because the whole trick is centered on, uh, on getting the squab in the exact center, right? But that's the way you do it. You arrange it in concentric circles and uh, it's uh, delicious. It's good business. Um, okay. Uh, let's see what we have here. Uh, Joseph writes in, Dave, I'm thinking of cooking pork chops with apple juice concentrate and was wondering if you have any experience with this combination. I mean, I've cooked <clears throat> hams in apple cider before. That was good. I'm assuming cooking a chop in apple juice concentrate is, is going to be good as well. You're going to want to be careful if you're doing a high temperature. If you use anything concentrated with a lot of sugar, you're going to get a lot of scorching problems. If you're doing a low temp, you're going to want to use a concentrated so it doesn't taste poached. You're going to get probably some flavor transfer, but I'm not sure how much. And then when you, if you're going to do a post sear as opposed to a braise, you're going to get in trouble with, again, with scorching. So anytime you're dealing with high sugar glazes, uh, unless you like burnt sugar taste, which some people do, which is why they put barbecue sauce on their meats before they grill them because they like a burnt sugar taste. It's just something to be aware of. But apple and pork, I mean, you can't get more classic than apple and pork, can you? No. Can't, be, can't possibly get more classic than that. Okay. Uh, Dave, we get this from Jason. Dave, I cure meats at home rather successfully, he might add. Uh, he often cures uh, pork, beef, goat, and lamb. A hunter at work has offered uh, me his next deer, which I promptly thought about curing into deer prosciutto, uh, salami, prasala, etc., etc. I have one concern. I thought wild deer often have parasites. Do you know if freezing will kill these parasites? If so, what temperature and for how long? The same question applies if I want to low temp cook some deer steaks. What's the minimum time temp for whatever parasites deer have? So any low temperature uh, cooking that's going to kill <coughs> bacteria is going to kill parasites. So you're not going to worry about parasites in a cooked thing as long as you've cooked them properly. I tried to do some initial research. Um, and, you know, deer can carry tapeworms and other parasites, but they typically won't jump to humans. You get a lot of bacterial contamination through shooting and things like that if the gut's uh, done or through poor, poor slaughtering. Uh, and, so, and there have been outbreaks of bacteria-related problems due to uh, beef jerky, uh, venison jerky. So in something that's not going to be cooked or salted enough or properly cured to kill all bacteria, you're going to want to – uh, you're going to want to do a cook step like when you're doing venison jerky. But for freezing, if there are uh, sort of any sort of worms or parasites that are there, freezing should kill them. Freezing does not kill bacteria, which is why freezing is not a good bacterial kill for doing uh, dry cured meats. But freezing is a good k- uh, kill for trichinosis and for tapeworm cysts. Now, I don't think there have been any cases of tapeworm cysts, uh, tapeworms developing from deer to people. You've got deer to dogs, and you've gotten dogs to people, but I don't know that you've gotten deer to people, but maybe. Uh, in which case, I've seen recommendations of a hard freeze, very you know, low, like zero or lower Fahrenheit for like, uh, <clears throat> you know, like well over a day. I couldn't find them anymore because Clemson used to have this stuff online, and they changed their site, and I couldn't get it anymore. Uh, but uh, take a look. I mean, um, it's something you worry a little bit about, but I wouldn't worry too much about. 
Uh, anyway, okay. Uh, last question of the day. I've got two minutes. John Blue writes in, Hello, pecan pralines were a traditional dessert of Mexicans settling in Texas way back in the day because that's all apparently uh, was necessary was pecans, water, and sugar, and apparently they had uh, sugar, which is weird, but they had sugar and they had pecans. Uh, replicating this with uh, pleasant results has not been successful. From what I've uncovered, refined sugar was commonly used. I've tried that and brown sugar, demerara, etc. I've tried short cook times and long times. They either end up too watery and won't harden or too green rainy from the sugar. Any suggestions on how to keep the sugar dissolved while thickening or how to harden the mixture without adding ingredients? Also, any plans to do a quest for French fry supremacy part three? Thanks, John Blue. Well, I'm going to address the French fries first. Uh, I'm going to, you know, we're going to be opening, um, 98% chance we're going to be opening a uh, bar concept in an existing place soon. And in it will be uh, the our supreme French fry, uh, which isn't exactly what's in the blog because I've increased the size of the French fry since we last did it, and it requires a couple different steps. Uh, but there will be an opportunity for anyone to come taste our French fry soon. It's true or false, yes. true. Okay, uh, I'm not. I don't know if I'm going to write about it anytime soon, just because I'm so damn busy. Anyway. Pralines are interesting. It's a question of what kind of a texture you want. Some people's pralines are uh, hard. The sugar is hard. And some people's pralines, the sugar texture is, very, is fairly soft, almost akin to a maple sugar. And the difference between them is how crystallized the sugar is. So I'm just going to go into general because I don't know exactly how you, you want them, right? If you want hard sugar that breaks like peanut brittle, you don't want uh, basically any crystallization hardly at all. You want it to form into hard candy. And for that, you want to minimize stirring and you're going to want to add the nuts late or basically pour this stuff over top the nuts, right? And then you're going to get a minimum amount of crystals uh, forming. You're going to want to do very little stirring of your sugar before the uh, before everything dissolves because you don't want big sugar crystals that then all of a sudden go back into the pot and form large crystals to uh, to get seeds, uh, seed crystals, right? If you want something more fudgy, you cook it all, you get it totally clean, and then you do stir it as it's cooling. And by stirring as it's cooling, you initiate the formation of lots of small crystals that give a fudgy texture. So... It, it all depends. You're going to have to write in and tell me exactly what kind of praline you want to hit, what kind of a texture you want to hit. But if it's getting too grainy, add the nuts much, much later in your process, even at the end. And if you want it fudgy, follow more fudge-like procedures of stirring, letting it cool somewhat, and then stirring it to generate small crystals. And if you want it to be fairly clear, except for, I don't know if you're adding any cream or milk-based stuff to it, then you're going to want to uh, do a minimal amount of stirring, make sure all of your crystals are dissolved, and then manipulate it the smallest amount uh, you can before you uh, pour it out and let it set. Uh, but let us know exactly what you're looking at, John, and we'll try to uh, troubleshoot a little more. This has been Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Food Karma. To kick off the New York City Meat Week in style, Meat with a Twist will bring together the best chefs and mixologists for a cocktail food pairing party on November 7th from 6 to 10 p.m. at City Winery. Meat with a Twist features 10 cocktails paired with 10 chef selections highlighting local, sustainably grown meats such as duck, lamb, chicken, pork, beef, bison, and ostrich. The party will launch a week's worth of events throughout the city that celebrate the slow food movement bringing sustainable meats to our tables. Again, that's November 7th from 6 to 10 p.m. at City Winery. Updates, tickets, and more information are available at meatweeknyc.com.